3: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. More than two million Californians identified as more than one race in the 2020 census, and many more of us have ancestors who make us a mix of ethnicities. There's something distinct and interesting about the perspective you get straddling worlds and cultures. These experiences are the subject of a new KQED series by Sasha Coca and Marisa Lagos. It's called Mixed Stories of Mixed-Race Californians, and we'll spend the hour listening to their reporting and hearing your experiences of mixed families here in the Bay Area. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the new series Mixed from KQED's California Report magazine, which documents and explores the experiences of people who defy the simple racial and ethnic categories that our government has codified. Let's listen in to their little opener. The most common question that I got growing up
2: was, what are you?
3: I just never understood why. Why can't you include all of me?
2: You know, where do I fit in? Who do I identify with?
0: I need all my mixed people to talk about it. Express yourself, your perspective. I'm
5: mixed, and I'm proud of it. Being myself and having an awesome family.
6: I have always been a mixed person. I wouldn't know how to think of myself otherwise, and I'm not planning on changing. As you might be able to hear just from that short intro,
3: Mixed identifies where our experiences might be distinct from those whose parents share a race or country of origin, and also where that very mixedness might be something we share with each other, if not with our parents. Here to chat this morning, we've got the creators of the new series here in Studio B, Sasha Coca. Welcome.
7: Hey, Alexis. So great to be here. Thank you.
3: And Marisa Lagos, welcome to you, you, too. Good morning. Um... I want to know, Sasha, let's start with you. I mean, this is obviously a personal project for y'all. You consider yourselves mixed in this way. Did you think about this a lot growing up, or was it something that you kind of came into as an adult?
7: Uh, You know, I feel like I really came into it as a teenager. I I grew up in L.A. My father's from India. My mom is Irish-American. And in our family, we talked about being bicultural, but we never really talked about being multiracial. And when I was 15, I went to this camp, outside of Los Angeles in the mountains called Brotherhood Sisterhood. It was kind of a radical camp where we talked about racism and sexism and all this different kind of stuff. And the first day I got put in a group for mixed kids and I walked into that group and I just burst into tears. I felt like I had come home being with other people, even if their identities were totally different than mine. Like, you know, a black father and a white mother or a Japanese and a Samoan uh, parentage, whatever it was, we had something in common in terms of feeling like outsider insiders. And like we never truly fit in any one space. So for you,
3: what's different about being, you know, say quote bicultural, from being quote mixed?
7: Wow, I mean, I think for every person, they kind of have to come to that understanding for themselves. I mean, Alexis, you're mixed too, and I think we should call that out that, you know, all of us um, kind of come to that identity. Race is still an organizing principle in the United States, even though we know it's a racial, a social construct. And I think for me, um, you know, South Asian is so complicated because we're looped in with all of these other Asian groups. And South Asians often feel like, wait, we're not East Asian. We're closer to Iranians. So, I mean, it's all kind of a construct. But for me, the mixed label feels like a homecoming because it feels like it embraces the fact that there's complexity and there's nuance and that we don't just check one box. And by the way, the boxes are ridiculous. Yes.
3: (laughs) Marisa, how about you? Um, How did you grow up in this way? You're from San Diego, right?
8: Right. So... I just will say at the outset like I still have a lot of ambivalence about even claiming being mixed race I feel like um, because I have Mexican heritage and a Latino sounding name I mean my last name is Mexican um <laughs> Uh, but I grew up in San Diego in a not a super culturally Mexican household. I was actually probably closer to my Armenian heritage in that house. Um, my great grandmother, who uh, fled Armenia before the genocide, was actually alive when I was a kid. So like she taught us how to cook and sort of like created that sense of home. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel like I've always had a lot of like almost like guilt or ambivalence about claiming my Mexican heritage because I don't speak great Spanish and I didn't sort of you know fit in within you know what unfortunately, remain sort of segregated schools, even if they're self-segregated, like with the Mexican kids. Um, And My parents, even though, you know, my dad grew up in San Francisco, he's mixed. He didn't claim that like that was not how he thought of himself, because I I think that's a generational thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in some ways, like this is really this series, this conversation with Sasha, this conversation with the people in our series and our listeners is almost me starting to claim that. But I do want to go to the box thing, because that to (laughs) me was like the real like concrete example of this sort of. Uncertainty around how to claim myself. I never understood as a kid. I was like, "What does that mean? Like non- latine or non-Hispanic white or what, how? You know, how do I do this?" And and I do think, and we'll get into some of this probably that those of us who have some skin privilege or who have you know white in the mix, all, like. Are, are always a little unsure about how much we're allowed to kind of claim. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in general, just being mixed, like the idea is you are between spaces. And, you know, we're going to talk to one of our guests later about this idea of sort of being able to claim your own identity and, and that we're all allowed to. But I think that is something that especially at our age um, – we're all in our forties, let's just say it. Um it, you know, I think it's a conversation that's really evolved over our lifetime and it's changed and more people are claiming this. But uh, you know, I still get pushback even from friends who are like, Oh, like how do you identify or what are you? And it's and it's like, you know what? Why However are you I part want of
7: the Hispanic Journalist Association. Yeah, like why are
8: you speaking at NAHJ, the Hispanic Journalist Association? You know, and it's like, you know, I I'm not an immigrant. I don't have those experiences, but that's not what actually like claiming your racial background is about.
3: Yeah, right. I, one of the people that you talked to, I said, put it, uh, really put it beautifully. She was like, well, your ancestors are all there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're, you're all, those. You, you are part of all of those people. Um, I, you know, for me, I'll, I'll just, just, so my, um, my background is on the table here too. I mean, I, I ended up thinking about this a ton because when I was 10, we moved from Los Angeles where essentially being Mexican or like in, in my case, uh, having a Mexican dad. Um, and we moved to rural Washington Mm. where suddenly, you know, having a Mexican dad was something notable rather than. Basically ubiquitous where I was growing up in Los Angeles. (laughs) Like you went from
8: being an insider to an outsider. Yeah, yeah. And it
3: was such an interesting thing because I think both for me and for my sister, it was like we came into this ethnic or racial consciousness like really in a snap. Like Mm -hmm. it was sort of like we drove up I-5 and suddenly we were like, whoa, we really need to think about this um, in a different way.
8: Which gets to, I think, what like is at the core of a lot of this is that like identity is both about what what your ancestry is and how you identify. But it also has to do with how the world perceives you. And we have little to no control over that. And I think that that is where some of, um, you know, the heartache can come in.
7: But what we do have control over is when we get that question, what are you, which yes. a lot of us get our whole life, is claiming our own identity and defining that for ourselves rather than letting other people say, you know, you're not quite enough. Right. Like, if even I go your to, own family. Right. Even your own family. Oh, you're not Indian enough. Oh, you're not Mexican enough. Oh, no, you're, you know, you know, I think it's really about just coming into our own ownership of ourselves and being ready with an answer for that question. What are you? And also saying, I'm not Part this and part that. I'm whole. Mm-hmm. I am this mm-hmm. and that.
3: Yeah. I once had a really interesting conversation with some of my cousins from Mexico who were talking about my dad as perhaps not being Mexican enough. Right. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> Man, if you're born there, you grow up there till eighteen and then you come to the US, you're really not Mexican enough. And I was like, Man, if even they're willing to go there, then you know, I need to like let this go that my Mexican cousins will somehow be like, Yes, you are Mexican. And
8: yeah. that and that really I think we have to acknowledge like community and geography because I always joke like nobody would you know, you know if you said I'm German or I'm Japanese in California nobody would say you're not really German unless you speak German but <laughs> being Mexican there is that sense right and I think that that is um is is a challenge and then if you go to another state like to your point Alexis that would look very very yeah, different yeah
3: we're talking about the experience being mixed. This is a piece of KQED's series, Mixed Stories of Mixed Race Californians, which is really running on the California Report magazine. We're joined by Sasha Coca, host of the magazine, and Marisa Lagos, KQED politics correspondent, co-host of KQED's political breakdown show, and Sasha's partner in this mixed series. We would love to hear from you. This is such a great caller show. We know that there's a lot of folks in the audience who identify with these issues based on previous shows. Are you mixed? How do you end up describing yourself to other people? Um, they asked a great question in their in their reporting. What's something only fellow mixed folks understand about growing up mixed? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. I do want to set a little bit of the structural context for this, which is just, this is a very California story. Maybe it's a Hawaii story, too, which has a higher <laughs> percentage of mixed people, but it's a very California story.
7: Yeah. I mean, California is the place with the the biggest number of mixed race people in the nation. And I mean, we saw this explosive jump in the census in terms of how many people identify as mixed race. California is also the birthplace of the multiracial movement. I mean, this is the place where people got together and said, hey, you know those boxes on the census? Uh-uh not working for us I don't want to have to choose one or the other. We are also uh, home to the longest running course in mixed race studies um, in the United <laughs> States, which was taught both at UCLA and, uh, and at University of California, Santa Barbara. So we are really at the cutting edge of this conversation. And you're right, Hawaii does have more mixed race people per capita, but we're a bigger state and we've got, <laughs> I think, about some 2 million people who identified as mixed race on the last census. Yeah.
3: You know, one other census note, which is I think there might be some people out there who are thinking to themselves, oh, Hispanic or Latino is an ethnicity, not a race. I mean, we hear people say this a lot. We did a show on this one time and we had like the the scholar on like Latino racial formation, and it just turns out it's a lot more complicated than that.
7: That's yeah. right. I mean, Latinidad is a social construct. South Asian is a social right. construct. <laughs> race in itself is a social construct. But you know, it's still a way that we organize and allocate power here in the US. And I and I and think it's it more complicated because we have like better
8: science now so people are doing these DNA tests and finding out <laughs> I mean most of us are mixed in some way right even and and you know that's something we get into um, particularly uh, with Reginald Daniel who who taught that mixed race course and is black and you know but wanted to look into his own kind of history of his family and got a lot of pushback for asking those questions um, I know yeah when one of my family members did our DNA like I mean Mexican, as a construct to some extent, is Mestizo, right? Like yeah. you have, not that everybody's a mix of everything, but a lot of Mexicans have indigenous blood, have Spanish blood, have African blood. And so how do you, yeah, think about that, deconstruct that, like wh- what can you identify with? Um, I think it's a really personal question ultimately.
3: Yeah. And I think it's just, um, you know, we have we have these boxes and we end up fitting our own complex understandings of them and simplifying them into those categories that you see on the census, which is why, as the census evolves, I think the way we talk about all this um, yeah. evolves, too.
8: And our kids are going to be talking about it totally differently. Absolutely. Absolutely.
3: We're talking about the experience of being mixed. We are celebrating KQED's series, Mixed Stories of Mixed Race Californians, with its creators, Sasha Coca, host for The California Report magazine, and Marisa Lagos, KQED politics correspondent. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Dirty
9: my clothes, this a vote. with my uncle on and my cousin on open,
0: I'll be how you in Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward.
3: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. I am joined in Studio B here with Sasha, by Sasha Coca, host for The California Report magazine, KQED of course, and Marisa Lagos, KQED politics correspondent. They are the creators of a new series for The California Report magazine, Mixed Stories of Mixed Race Californians. Before we bring in another guest, let's hear our first uh, story. Amy in San Francisco. Welcome. Hi, thank you.
1: i upon this report, this is just amazing, because I am, I'm 50 years old, and I grew up in the Bay Area, um, in, like, South Bay, and it was at a time where um, I am half Japanese, and I am a quarter Portuguese and a quarter German. <laughs> um, and so, it was crazy, because where I grew up at the time, even though it's super uh, Asian, where my parents are now... At the time, there was pretty much no mixed-race kids there. And I was sent to Japanese school on Saturdays. Mm. And I was, you know, regular school during the week. And it was crazy because when I went to regular school, um, they would always make fun of me for being uh, Asian. And I used to get all kinds of Asian slurs, and I Mm. used to get tortured all the time as an Asian kid. But then I'd go to Japanese school, (laughs) And I would get made fun of for being white. <laughs> right. Um, and it's like, I just never seem to...
3: Doesn't seem fair. Doesn't seem fair, Amy.
1: Never <laughs> enough. <laughs> no. It was never enough. And I, there's a, there was a picture of me in 1978 where my mom dressed me up. It was at the San Jose um, Buddhist Church where we did the Obonodori there. And I was in my little kimono and everything. And they had made a comment about how, you know, oh, I look so cute, but I'm you know, half Japanese. And so it's like they pointed mm-hmm. that out. And I remember, um, the first time I went to Hawaii, I though I'm not from Hawaii, I got there and people actually treated me like a local because mm-hmm. my mix is relatively uh, common there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was an amazing feeling. For the first time I was like, Wow, like there's so many people here that are so like me and that's yeah. just so weird and it was a it was a very crazy thing. And I feel like the last uh, sort of click was those boxes, those damn boxes, right? (laughs) For years, I would check Japanese because you could only check one, right? And then within recent times, they said, you know, two or more. And then I started to like, you know, I would deliberately try to check two or whatever. And they finally started having that box that said, you know, two or more there. And it's just, it's. Although it is a social construct, it's crazy, like you said, how other people perceive you and then how it affects you as an individual growing up. And it's just... I
3: just thank you for doing this report. Oh, oh, Amy, thank you for the call. You. <laughs>
8: you know,
1: Amy brings up something that one of
8: our guests um, has done a lot of work on, which is the question. Joemi Ito, who's an educator in the East Bay, but also does a lot of activism around kind of pushing back against cultural appropriation and fashion. But we have this conversation because, like, when you're mixed, like, yeah, like if if you know, Sasha wears a sari, or mm. if Amy, you know, wears a kimono, like there are people who are gonna sort of question that, but like that's not fair at all like why why Mm -hmm. why is only part of you allowed to claim that heritage like why like why would you be pushed into being white but say that you can't do that and I think it's a really fascinating like very layered
7: I love Joemi told us that it feels like a cultural hug when she wears Mm -hmm. her kimono it's like a hug from her ancestors but she is pushing back against non-Japanese designers absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. using Mm -hmm. kimonos and Japanese fabrics and but she
8: was pretty clear when like you said I don't know I felt like am I allowed to do this she's like, heck yes, you are, you know, like you, you, you are Indian, Sasha, you know, and I, I think right. sometimes like we, and that's part of like this series, I think just getting that community around us to be like, yeah, you are who you are and you're allowed to be that has been really gratifying for not just the guests, but us, I think.
3: Yeah. You know, I did want to talk about um, some of the reporting that is, that's in the series, uh, in particular, this incredible interview you did with Kip Fulbeck. Uh,
7: he's an artist
3: him. who had this uh, photo exhibit. Why don't you set that up for us, Sasha? And then um, we have a cut of your interview from
7: me. Absolutely. So Kip Fulbeck is a professor at UC Santa Barbara. Somehow everybody who studies mixed race seems to be at UC Santa Barbara. <laughs> but, which is my alma mater, uh, so Yeah, I love that. <laughs> um, but he's an incredible artist and photographer. And, you know, back in 2006, my partner is also mixed. He's Japanese and Mexican, went through a lot of things that Amy did uh, growing up, we went to the Japanese American National Museum in L.A. because we were trying to get the records from incarceration, from internment, where his father was a little boy in the incarceration camps. And we walked in and we saw these photographs of mixed people all over the walls. And it was part of Kip Fulbeck's HAPA exhibit. He's since done another book called Mixed. In fact, uh, Maya Sotero, uh, Barack Obama's sister, I collaborated with him on that. But um uh, he is a, an amazing artist who has given mixed people a platform by taking these photographs and then having people write below those photographs in their own handwriting the words that they use to describe themselves. And mm. it's absolutely fascinating.
3: Let's uh listen in to Kip Volbeck talking about this work.
0: This project gave people the avenue to actually like say it for themselves. I think people jumped at it. And I, I had no idea it was going to be received the way it was. People were sick of filling out these forms, like you'd pick, pick race, you know, please explain. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to explain. Um, I'm not going to not just not check one box. It was 2000 before we were able to even check more than one box. And it's still these ridiculous boxes non-Hispanic white. What does that mean? I know.
5: <laughs> preach, Kip,
0: preach. It's true.
3: Um, we want to add another voice uh, into our conversation here. Let's bring in Dr. Jennifer Noble, a uh, psychologist, educator, and coach for families with mixed-race kids. Welcome, Jennifer. Good
7: morning. Thanks hey, Dr. For having... Hi, Dr.
9: Jen. <laughs> Hi, Dr. Jen. How are you doing? It's
3: doing well. Dr. Jen, I wanted to ask you about something. Um, you know, uh, when Amy called in, you know, she kind of gave uh, kind of fractional accounting of herself, which I had to stop myself from doing earlier saying, you know, half Mexican. Um, <laughs> if, how, what is another way we could talk about that aside from kind of doing the, the pie chart of, uh, of self? Which, and also, As
7: I have told Dr. Jen, my mom literally made me when I was a child. <laughs> yeah. And Dr. Jen, I'd love it if you just tell us why fractions are problematic to start yeah. with. Yeah, you know,
9: I just to answer the first question, how you do it is you just list what it is without the fractions, you just put commas or an and <laughs> mm-hmm. instead. So it's not much of an adjustment, really, but it, it can feel a lot different. Um, and I just feel that, you know, the the fractions piece of it, it is breaking you down. And it, I think, because we're such a math oriented people, we think in numbers and, you know, quantifying everything. And so when you really you may not realize it, but when you say to yourself, I'm a fourth this, or I'm half that you, you begin to conceptualize it as, well, I'm less, I'm not whole then. Mm -hmm. So then when someone is like, Oh, you know, you're half Indian in your mind, you're like, yeah, that means I'm not, Mm -hmm. I'm not enough of Indian. I'm not fully Indian. I'm not a hundred percent, you know, all those things that make it less. Um, And so I think when you remove that, you give yourself a chance to be like, you know what? I am a part of this all together. I don't have to quantify it and split myself apart into smaller pieces. Mm. You know, I'm one whole person with these heritages.
3: You know, Dr. Jen, you know, in your work with with families and your own life, have you found that mixed communities in which, you know, maybe parents are predominantly Black and something else or predominantly white and something else, given the like specific racial history of the United States and and our specific set of oppressions. Have you found that that mixed kids still have a lot in common, even if their parents uh, may be these uh, different um, races?
9: Yes, absolutely. Yes. Um, I mean, that's from my own personal experience and then just from work that I've done, because I've, I've attended a lot of conferences as, you know, working uh, for a nonprofit here in Southern California. And when you go to these conferences, people can be of so many varieties of backgrounds. But when it comes to certain discussions, all of a sudden everybody's like, oh, my God, me too. And (laughs) you know, so it's it's there is definitely a shared experience when you get into the specifics. Okay, yes, then there's a little bit of difference there. But absolutely, there is a shared
2: experience.
3: Um, let's uh, bring in another one of these experiences uh, Sean in San Francisco welcome
2: hey how you doing
3: hey doing well welcome
2: well you know I, I I'm 49 I grew up at a time when you were like the one drop rule reigned supreme
10: mm-hmm. right? so
2: I'm curious is this new this this I I, mm-hmm. I hear people calling my kids mixed and it drives me crazy right because they're not mixed right I I, I I, uh, I, I, I want to push back against this, like, white math concept, hmm. right? Of, like, it's always showing how much white you have in you, right? How much, how are you going to explain your whiteness so that you are acceptable? That's the way I grew up with, with this concept, right? Uh, Sean, what do you want your kids
3: marriage, to be? How do you refer to your kids?
2: Um, as whole humans, right? So genetically, I am black and First Nations, while my partner is of Chinese ethnicity, right? Mm-hmm. So she is all about saying that she's Hapa. Um, our kids are Hapa, but I, I, I don't like that. Like, they're just, they're, they're humans, right? Mm-hmm. We're humans, yo. <laughs> um, I, I happen to be black, right? Yes, I half of my ethnicity is First Nations, but for all intents and purposes, when the rest of the world, and especially the police, see me, like, I'm black, yeah, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, my daughter will not have that, but she's not half of anything, and she's definitely nowhere close to, like, doing any sorts of, again, what I'm calling white math, right? So how, is that, how yeah. does that fit in with this mixedness? Yeah. I'll, I'll take my like,
3: no, thank you, Sean. I, I really appreciate that perspective. You know, um, Dr. Jan, could you talk a little bit about um, Sean's experience and, and just the the feelings that he's having around, you know, kind of blackness versus mixedness?
9: yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a really it's a very, very common experience. and and there has been a lot of change in a relatively short time. So within one generation, the conceptualization of like identity is shifting. And um, I, I think the one drop rule, it has done a lot of damage. But at the same time, so many people have also bought into it. And so when we when we ask anyone, whether it's impacted them negatively or not it's really hard to let go of a this one drop rule of like no you're just this or you know for example in, in his case he's saying well I'm I'm black I know I'm also something else, but I'm just black um so I think to me I kind of take a note from the generation like Gen Z folks
10: mm-hmm.
9: they really push back against, rules of categorization. So they're just like, look, I'm just going to be fully me and authentically me. And I don't care if it follows your rules or not. So I think for his family, he could easily just list all the things, <laughs> and it, you know, again, it just goes back to what are your kids? Yes, they are human. Of course they are. Mm-hmm. But if someone tries to say, oh, but like, let's classify them and what, you know, how much this and how much that you're like, no, they are, I, f- I forgot what he listed again. First Nations, African-American, and was it? Um, Chinese. Chinese, yeah. Chinese. Yeah. Chinese, yes. So that's it. Commas between the three and let the people, you know, deal with it as they will. Oh, but what are they really and what are they more? And No, I told you what they are. You, I answered <laughs> your question and my children are just human and goodbye. You know. But also his kids are going to be able to
8: define it for themselves and he doesn't get to tell them how they identify, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a big part of this conversation is like, it, it Especially when your mix is different than your parents, you are having a singular experience, right? And so they might have different language than what he's comfortable with. I don't know. You know, they may not. They might agree with him on that. Um, and then he brought up the one-drop rule. And I think we just, like, have to say, like, that is a huge part of these conversations. Um, obviously, neither Sasha or I are Black. And so we... Um, I've really, you know, tried to give a lot of voice and opportunity to folks to have those conversations, to think about that. Um, and, you know, I think that that's a, a really common term. But like I had to look up like what exactly did that mean? And it, it was a legal principle. I mean, and it was aimed at both keeping people enslaved and then obviously keeping them in the Jim Crow era from having rights. And it was essentially overturned by a Supreme Court decision, right? Because uh, it wasn't specific to that. But um, I I think that we have, yeah, we have to acknowledge repeatedly, like how much, if you have black in the mix, it is a different experience in America. Absolutely.
3: You know, Sean, thank you so much for, uh, for that. I mean, we, You know, this is definitely like the stickiest part of, of this project. And so you you talked with uh, a UC Santa Barbara professor named uh, Reginald Daniel, right? That,
7: that's right, yeah.
3: And we actually, we have a clip of him talking. Do you want to set it up? He's kind of talking about his own background.
7: That's right. I mean, I feel very privileged that we got to talk to Dr. Reg Daniel. In fact, he passed away a few weeks after Marisa and I were able to interview him. He was one of the founders of mixed race studies and was a real uh, groundbreaking racial theorist uh, who taught the longest running class in mixed race studies in the United States, Um, died very suddenly. And he was a very interesting person because his parents identified as black. He -hmm. he did not have parents who identified as coming from two different races. Mm. He strongly claimed a mixed identity based on the fact that phenotypically people in his family um, going back, you know, there were white ancestors. And he did not feel like he could just claim blackness. Mm. And he got a lot of pushback for that.
3: Yeah. I mean – as Sean was indicating, it kind of makes sense because it's about – I think some black people see this as being about positioning yourself in proximity to whiteness.
6: Right. Right. Um, yeah. Well, let's listen into to um, Reginald Daniel. Louisville, Kentucky, which is where I grew up, uh, you know, we couldn't eat in Woolworths. We had to I – mean, we couldn't sit at the, the, the counters in Woolworths. We had to stand So I have very clear memories of those. And you grew up with a certain sense of anxiety about appropriate behavior and what things could happen if you crossed the line unwittingly and didn't know. But all of the grandparents are themselves the offspring of what we would consider to be interracial unions. Two of them were not marriages. The other ones were. So there was a sense, I think, of shame about that. Uh, That ancestry and the privileges that often come uh, at that time, particularly among African Americans, about being lighter skinned and all this whole kind of thing. So there was a great deal of silence about it. But for me, I was just looking at the world around me and saw a lot of things that nobody wanted to talk about. Uh, But then, when I began to realize that it's much more complicated than that, and my family was really very silent about it. And They were really uncomfortable with me asking questions about our background and why we look the way we look. I was an outlier uh, throughout my entire life to identify as mixed, and my family was not happy about it. That was uh, Reginald
3: Daniel, UC Santa Barbara professor who uh, recently uh, passed away. You know, um, Dr. Jen, you knew Reginald Daniel. Um, was his work influential in shaping your own thinking or have did you push back on his work like how did how did his um kind of research and thinking influence your own
9: oh gosh no he was very influential for me and and it was more like inspirational mentor guidance kind of thing because he was at all of the conferences that I would go to um he was often a speaker he was either on a panel he was leading something um so uh, all of his philosophy and like thought on this, I would just be like, yes, yes, me too. Oh my gosh. You know? So it was more of a, just a really, it's like, you know, hanging out with your favorite uncle or something and kind of just listening to what they're saying and the work that they're doing and the other, the new wise thoughts that they have. So, um, no, I, I, I definitely didn't push back. He was just a person that maybe gave me more words and more validation on some of the things that I was already thinking, you know? Mm. He was very much a leader in the community and and everyone that was in his presence was just like, he is, if you got to have him on your panel, that was like a big deal.
3: You know, we um, have so many good uh, comments coming in. Aaron writes just kind of with a note. I appreciate that the world reads people as mixed, but there's something of a faulty premise here. It assumes that those that are not mixed are somehow, quote, pure. Even cultures that are supposedly homogenous, for example, Japanese, are, are just as complex. Mm-hmm. And I think we, we recognize that and appreciate that Absolutely. Uh, note.
9: Yes, that's a great point.
3: Um, well, you know what? We have so many long and interesting comments. I'm going to wait on it. We are talking about uh, KQED's new series, Mixed Stories of Mixed Race Californians. We have the creators of that series, Sasha Coca, host for The California Report magazine, and Marisa Lagos, KQED politics correspondent, as well as host of Political Breakdown and often guest host here on <laughs> Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more of your calls and comments right after the
0: break.
3: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We are talking about being mixed. We've got the hosts of a new KQED series, Mixed Stories of Mixed Race Californians, here with us, Sasha Coca and Marisa Lagos. You probably know them from their other work around the station. And we're also joined by one of the featured uh, interviews of their series. We've got Dr. Jennifer Noble, who's a psychologist, educator, and coach for families with mixed race kids. Um, we're going to get to more of your calls. You've been flooding the phone lines. Let's get to uh, Rick in San Francisco.
6: Hi, how you doing? Hey, doing well.
3: Welcome.
11: Great, thank you. Um, I'm born in California, up in Solano County, uh, 42 years old now, born in 1980. Um, growing up, I guess I did use fractions. I'd say I was half Mexican and half white. Mm hmm. Um, ended up going to college and uh, learning a lot more about just race as a social construct, and um, began to kind of blend, uh, modify how I would say that. So now, if someone asks, I say I'm a I'm a Euro Latino blend. Uh, something <laughs> I more like
5: that.
8: Something
11: Sounds like a nice more like cocktail. coffee. Say, yeah. yeah, something like <laughs> more more like a coffee bean. Um, yeah, than than a fraction. Um, yeah. And uh, it's. It's been actually very interesting going out in public as well because I'm, I'd say, tan-skinned but don't have any sort of clearly defined features. So a lot of people ask me, They'll so look at me, and they'll say, what are you?
7: The <laughs> ubiquitous <laughs> question am, what, we all get our whole lives,
11: yes. What am I? What are you? I don't know. I, I'm a person. <laughs> um, and then, then they'll drill deeper, and they'll say, well, well, what ethnicity? or?" And, of course, they mix up ethnicity, nationality, heritage, um, to, usually wrong. I'm going to say, well, what do you think? And what's been most surprising is because I could be kind of anything, they – most often guess what they are. Um, Mm -hmm. They they see themselves in me. And so um, I get Turkish, Egyptian, mm-hmm, uh, yeah. Armenian, mm-hmm. per- Persian uh, things I've never have been, um, and I just <laughs> sometimes I just I just roll with it. I just not, in life, it. Rick, yeah, no. not in this life, Rick. Not in this life. My sister and
8: I always had that experience, like traveling in like Latin America and parts of Europe, where people always think we're from like one country over. Like you know we're not <laughs> from there, but they're like you're close by, right? You
3: know. Like, you know, I mean, it's yeah. interesting. Thank you for that, Rick. I mean, I think sometimes people take what are you as a somewhat aggressive question but one of the things that rick's experience shows is like sometimes it's because people are sort of like are you like me
7: Mm -hmm.
3: right i mean Mm -hmm. that's that can be what's behind that question it's not always sometimes it's like how should i be racist we haven't
8: had good language around having these conversations in ways that are like yeah i mean dr jen what do you think like what's your opinion on like is it okay to ask someone
9: oh i think it's well, whether we say it's okay or not, people are going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, true. it's true. I'm not sure that we need to answer that. But I I do think it's okay sometimes. I do think, um, like the caller said, you know, some people have curiosity that's coming from a a, pla- a personal place. Um, I always say that the person being asked, often your gut will tell you which way they're right. asked. Mm. You, you know that's the nature of a microaggression, right? You can hear the tones, you can hear, you can see body language, you can see eye contact, and you can realize, oh, this is not a friendly question. You are not Mm -hmm. trying to connect with me. You're upset in some way that I'm present. Mm -hmm. Um, Or you are really curious, you're wanting to connect. um, And so therefore, I may join that discussion. And I think I feel like most mixed race people are okay with the question when it's Curiosity, when it's, you know, friendly, connection, genuine. Um, mm-hmm. but when it becomes a little
3: Right. Not the where are you really from? Yeah. Of, uh, yeah.
8: Where are it, you really? Maybe, <laughs> yeah, where are you? Where are you really supposed to be? Not here. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. Right. Um, Why do you exist? That that's
7: yes. sometimes what it is. <laughs>
5: Let's bring
3: in uh Catherine from Oakland. Welcome, Catherine.
5: Oh, hi. Hi.
3: Hey, welcome. Can you hear me? Yes, yeah. sure can.
5: Thank you so much for giving all us mixed people a voice or however we individually want to identify. So I was, so I'm Catherine. I'm a psychiatrist in the Bay Area and I grew up mostly in Eugene, Oregon and, um, also spent summers in Chicago, which was like two completely different worlds. Um, hmm. for me, because of my, uh, mix, which is African American, Caucasian and Cherokee.
4: So mm-hmm.
5: I've gone through like a lot of different um, phases of identity, and a lot of it is based on how I'm perceived and how I'm accepted um, from external sources. So as a mm-hmm. child, I was perceived as black and had a lot of extreme um, anti black racism. Mm-hmm. And so my core identity is as a black person, but um, there's also uh, a lot of input from my mother, who's Jewish, mm-hmm. and um, grandmother, who's Black and Native American. Um, but, uh, and so at first I was very accepted by uh, the Black community and um, brought in and. What, and was definitely uh, held at arm's length from the white community. And to mirror one of the previous callers talking about the one-drop rule, mm-hmm. that was very much my experience as a child growing up in Eugene, Oregon. Um, so, But being a lighter-skinned, mixed um, person, as I got older, I found a lot of rejection and pushback from the black community. Mm-hmm. And so then it kind of changed my... Identity, it's basically what was I allowed to be. So there's a lot of Mm. silencing going on. There is the a lot of what we deal with as mixed people is being perceived and labeled by external sources and then adopting those labels internally. Um, But then when those labels change and shift and the acceptance levels change and shift over time, it kind of forces us to go beyond those labels and really figure out who are we as a person, as a whole person, Mm -hmm. not as all these racial labels, right? Um, So there's that aspect of it um, and going through all these different phases of labeling. But the question of safe spaces becomes very prominent um, for some of us because it's not safe for me to run around and call myself a black woman necessarily depending on what space I'm in because of my um, light skin Mm. color, it's not always um, a welcome thing for me to identify myself as Um, because many times people uh, because of their own pain and suffering would not understand that somebody who looks like me might also have racial pain and suffering. It's Mm. hard to welcome people who look differently than yourself sometimes.
3: You know what I mean? Yeah.
5: And Ka- so so yeah.
3: Catherine, thank you so much for uh, for sharing that experience and, and also just sharing some of that the pain of this that I think a lot of people mm-hmm. really do do experience in so many different dimensions. I mean, <laughs> head on a swivel, you're not sure where it's going to come from, depending on...
7: And sometimes it comes from your own family. Right. And yeah. that's, I think, some really deep pain, right? When people in your own family say, you know, you're not enough, or you're not quite this, or you're right. not quite that. And then also the question of, like, who? I, I think
8: some of this is experiential in terms of how we identify. So one of our guests is Sheree Moraga, this uh, sort of legendary uh, writer and Um, artist and she really identified more with her mexican side because her that's who was around her her mother's family her father's family was basically absent and so i think like sometimes that is is just like this other layer of it that like you may be this mix of all these things but there might be one part of your heritage that you just really feel connected to because of those personal experiences Mm.
3: You know, um, just on this—the uh, kind of pain that can that can go along with this topic. I mean, Barb writes in to say, uh, "I'm a mother of a mixed child, Mexican German, and watching my child negotiate the bullying that he experienced was heartbreaking." He experienced prejudice because he has a complexion that does not, quote, match his last name. Teachers would often lump him into stereotypical groups. Students would say you aren't a real fill in the blank. And he experienced so many assumptions about language. Recently, Santa Rosa experienced a high school homicide at Montgomery High School. And mm. race and mixed race was a contributing factor to the bullying that the students on both sides were experiencing. It was just one factor, but it should not be discounted since the bullying issue so, uh so problematic um let's bring in um alex in san francisco welcome alex
4: hi um can you hear me
3: yes sure can go ahead
4: yes so i'm from a sort of intergenerational mixed-race family uh when people ask me what are you or some euphemistic version of that (laughs) i answer uh, my grandmother's from japan Um, so my mom grew up, um, Japanese and Irish in California, um, uh, and, oh, I'm 34, by the way. So she, so my grandmother came from Japan right after world war II. Mm. So she was not accepted by like the Japanese American community. Mm. Um, so my mom definitely experienced that rejection from, you know, both cultures. And she instilled in me kind of a deep suspicion of any group identity at all. Um, Mm. I grew up outside of Boston, a really, really white area, and so my Asian ancestry was very prominent. Um, but then, and I grew up with it just being like, "Oh yeah, that's like another um, part of my ancestry," and it ca- I felt kind of special when I went to California for school. It sort of disappeared, <laughs> and all of a sudden I was white, and I had and that caused all this like internal drama of like, mm-hmm. "What am I? Oh my gosh!" Um, and now I have, um, two kids with my husband whose ancestry is mostly European. Um, I gave them Japanese middle names to feel more connected to that history, mm. but I kind of panicked sometimes about like, Oh my God, how are they going to identify? Like <laughs> I, I went to the doctor and I had to like check off what their race was. And I, and I like sort of panicked at the doctor's office and I was like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what their race is.
3: <laughs> yeah. Like,
4: different. In two years. Um, so, yeah, I think it's... Don't worry, whatever
3: you do when they're teenagers, they'll decide you did it wrong.
7: That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, But, you know, this next generation, I think, is really forging a whole new trail where they're just exploding the binaries. I mean, my ki- my partner's mixed. Our kids are Mexican, Japanese, South Asian, white. And you know what? At- early on, they'd be like, oh, my hands are this, my nose is this. And I'd be like, no, 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 it's not that. You're a whole person. <laughs> but, uh, but I think they're sort of like whatever. Like all their friends are mixed. They're kind of not, It it's not as much of an issue for them. There isn't so much angst over it. Yeah. And, and I think by the time they're old enough to fill out the census, hopefully those boxes will have evolved so that they can feel like they're reflected even on those government yeah. forms.
3: You know, Dr. Jen, um, one of our listeners, Nancy writes in to say, as the parents of two mixed race children, I'd like to know from all of you what you wish your parents would have done for you to help you develop or celebrate your racial slash cultural identity?
9: Ooh, I think that's a great I mean, how much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think one of the most important things is just trying to present the whole picture to the child rather than explaining who they are to them. So it's just sort of like lay of the land. Here's Here's all the things that you are. Here's what the world is gonna do with it. Now, you know, take that and go kind of thing. I, I think that is a little bit, it, it allows the child to develop some critical thinking to kind of understand the world. I always say like, if you can have an inside scoop or secret with your child about the world, they they love that. They become more connected to you and they feel like they know something that other people don't. So mm-hmm. when you begin to explain like, look, these are all the things that you are, you're, you're four things, your five things, your two things. The world is going to be like, that's not possible. But isn't that wild? You already exist. So it is. <laughs> and let's help you embrace that from a very young age so that when you get to the age where people try to press you and push you, you won't be as easily pushed and pressed. You know what I mean? Yeah.
3: I mean, I I, I kind of love it because I feel like it allows. I mean, it's the most like Bay Area, most California identity to have this mixture of Cultures and ethnicity and races. I mean, that is kind of what defines us here mm-hmm. as a as a region you know, that there's all these different kinds of people. And it's kind
7: of a superpower. I mean, Dr. Mm -hmm. Jen, you've used that word, right? That we're able to be a fly on a wall in different situations and move with fluidity between situations. And I think for me, it's helped me as a journalist. It's part Mm -hmm. of why I Mm -hmm. can have sort of an ability to move between communities and talk to people and have deeper conversations. What Mm -hmm. I wish my parents had done, though, and I don't think it was their fault. It was my generation. I wish we had seen more families like ours reflected in movies Mm. and tv and sort of in the zeitgeist because we felt so other you know i I, there was nobody quite like us and i think that is changing and dr jen i know you've got you know books and movies that you recommend (laughs) um families watch and there's just so much more it's so much more in the you know in the milieu right now for people to be able to see that
3: uh, you know, one of our listeners writes with a bit of a different perspective I'm a Bay Area native, mixed race, half white European, and half Indian. I want to offer a slightly different perspective on what it means to be a mixed race. I never felt confused, nor did I ever let the perceptions of others dictate how I felt about my cultural identity. Rather, I think it gave me the huge benefit, as we were saying, of seeing the dynamics of in and out groups of any kind, racial or otherwise as arbitrary and counterproductive. It's easier for mixed-race people to see how superficial and, frankly, silly it is to define and defend these groupings with such fervor. Mm-hmm. I hope that during this conversation some listeners will be encouraged to move towards seeing everyone as an individual. We'll all be better for it. Thanks for that.
8: And we did really, I think, one thing, you know, some of this is talking about the challenges of identity, but it's also the joy of the it. The celebration and, of and, it. And, and, yeah, the ability, as Sasha says, I mean, yeah, that I can, like, you know make tamales one day and then make some uh, sarma the next like it's, it's because all of those parts of us are joyful and to your point Alexis I mean some of the best like food and culture in the Bay Area is based Music. on these mashups right yeah. this mixes guap yeah the rap artist originally from Oakland we have featured in this and he just has an incredible story because he presents as black but he was basically raised by his Filipino grandma and so mm. like you know we played earlier Chicken Adobo is one of his songs <laughs> it's great it's just so joyful
3: you know, um, you're coming out of this project. I mean, you're not totally done with it yet, but a lot of it is in the can now. Do you think that you yourself I'm going to start with you, Marisa, have, have changed, has it, doing this project changed the way you feel about your own identity?
8: Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's given me more permission to claim who I am. And and I think it's inspiring me to kind of look deeper and have these conversations, hopefully with my kids Um, and also to like be more understanding of other people, because I think, again, like my husband is mixed as well and like he identifies in a way that I haven't always quote unquote agreed with and like that's not my job that's or right. role it's, you I don't can't know, police like, that yeah it's opened my eyes in a way to be like oh right like he gets to decide as well um, so it has and I think like I said at the top I still have some like ambivalence I still almost am sitting here for the hour being like someone's gonna call and be like Marisa you're not really mixed race like. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that's part of the process and it's been yeah it's been a really cool kind of evolution to to do and to continue these conversations
7: yeah I mean for me growing up as I said there were hardly any people with my mix like you know the South Asian community does not intermarry that much that's changing now every little kid i see you know whose whose dad is a software engineer and mom is a white woman i'm like oh my god can i just hug you and embrace you but um but you know i don't go up to random kids and hug them but but (laughs) but, you know what for me i I think um dr jen you know just the revelation from the conversation we had about fractions i grew up in my family Mm -hmm. all the time saying half and half i'm not doing that anymore i'm whole totally yeah. I told my mom, and she took it really well. Oh, this good. <laughs> You're <laughs> like, no,
3: no more, more pie, pie charts. Starts, no more paper definitely. plate, Mom. Thank you. Um, right. We have been talking about the experience of being mixed. There's a lot more where this came from. Sasha Coca, host for The California Report magazine, and Marisa Lagos, uh, KQED politics correspondent, have created mixed Stories of mixed race Californians. They can hear it on the California Report magazine. That's
7: right, and it's rolling out through the end of April. We've got seven episodes. The first two are out, another one dropping today. Yeah.
3: We have also been joined by the excellent Dr. Jennifer Noble, psychologist, educator, and coach for families with mixed race kids. Thank you so much, Dr. Jen.
9: Thanks for having me. This was so fun.
3: <laughs> Thank you to all of our listeners. So many of you. Sorry we couldn't get to everyone. This Hour of form is produced by Blanca Torres, Grace Wan, and Catherine Monahan. Marlena jackson Rotondo is our engagement producer. Judy Campbell's lead producer. Our engineer is Danny Bringer. Our interns are Lulu Ralda and Jericho Reininger. Our vice president of news is Ethan Toven and Lindsay. enjoyed Denver and the NCAA tournament, Ethan. And our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Higher, higher, higher,
5: higher, higher. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.